This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Grace Nichols, a citizen scientist and also an activist. A former biology teacher, she has founded a group to document the many species of bats that live in portions of the pine bush slated for development. She describes the sounds heard on their bat detectors, the pitch too high for human ears. Standing near the fringes of green in the midst of suburbia, says Nichols, you become more aware of how alive the whole world is. Nichols was instrumental in getting Albany County last year to pass a resolution to be pollinator-friendly. People have told her, Grace cares more about insects than people. Her response, there are no people without insects. I'd like to start just by hearing about what you and the group you founded are doing with bats in the pine bush. Well... Before I returned to New York State, I was doing um, conservation, preservation with Headwaters Forest in Northern California, which was big primary rainforest redwood territory. And when I came back to New York State, you know, I had a history degree, I had a teaching credential. I felt that I needed more science background to be a better environmentalist. And I was really hooked on this idea that E.O. Wilson was right, that over a thousand species were going extinct a year, and it was an unrecognized crisis. And if the history of natural history was in peril, then everything else didn't matter. So I actually had the great fortune to meet Ward Stone at that point and realized that Delmar, New York, is sort of a hot spot for citizen science and for wildlife monitoring. So they're very aware of the impacts on the local, on, on New York State wildlife, really, in a kind of comprehensive way. So I was very fortunate enough to, to learn um, more about um, what's needed in terms of habitat preservation, ecosystem preservation. And for flash forward to the current time, um, I'm no longer a science teacher. Um, I actually work for the state. Um, I'm in a very fortunate position in that I know a little something about conservation biology, but I don't actually work for either the DEC or or the EPA or uh, a university that gets federal grants or anything like that. So I'm at liberty to say, let's take that citizen science and actually use it to save habitat, which we all recognize is the number one reason for the termination of species. And so this led you to your current project. It did. Um, what we realized was that we have locally the Albany pine bush, and, and we're used to it being here as kind of being a fact of life, but it's actually globally extremely rare. I mean, even when I was working with the big redwoods who are, you know, a seventh wonder of the world and all that, um, the pine bush has over 70 rare species, uh, the federally endangered Carner Blue, several other insects who probably should be federally listed, and they're that rare. And... Um, and that's unusual. It's unusual that you have a community with that kind of status. And there's a reason for it. It's because the acidic, sandy soil and the um, 
unique plant community that grows up in that habitat um, supports the life processes of the species that were adapted for that kind of habitat, and there isn't very much of it. So you end up with over 70 species who are limited to using this kind of habitat. And um, so when we realized that Crossgates, once again, and Crossgates' um, parent company, Pyramid LLC, um, is actually a humongous, massive um, landholder in Gilderland and also around the, around the state. And um, so they were planning once again to expand. And it's a little outrageous because they had signed some mitigation agreements uh, back in, I believe, 1994, um, saying that they would never impact Butterfly, um, the Butterfly Hill that um, was kind of the last the butterfly when they nearly exterminated it from this area and um so but now they're gonna you know build on a piece of land that just overlaps with it is contiguous with it you know and that will have a variety of effects including shading and and temperature effects on butterfly hill and we're like come on cross gates you've already expanded and impacted this community so much um uh, this is this is outrageous. And then they continued to expand the expansion. So it went from 19 plus acres to now it's 46 plus acres with like humongous parking lots. 17, what is it? 1,700 parking spaces they want? Um, a lot. And, uh, you know, a Costco, a gas station, you know, apartment complexes. And all of these have a multitude of effects. And so we thought, hmm, this is a state environmental quality review process where we get to look at the in ecosystem impacts aside from economics, but really look at whether it's portable to this um, rare ecosystem, what they plan to do. And um, as we're looking at that, what's important is to see unbiased science. And so when Pyramid LLC files their environmental impact statement, they actually hire scientists to do um, species inventory. In this case, we have no idea who they hired to do species inventory because they didn't give us either the methodology or the qualifications of the people who did it. So we have no idea. But basically, their species inventory are important because that's how you start making decisions on how important this land is. In, in, there's other impacts, climate impacts and, and such. But, you know, species inventory is pretty pretty central to the argument. And their species inventory was so poor that even someone with my limited background could say, are you telling me there are no reptiles out there? Are you, you know, no garter snakes? You can find me. You know, uh, are you saying there's no bats out there? Which they did say. So there was an opening for us to say maybe we need some extra conservation biology attention to this land. And that's when you jumped in. But before we hear, I guess, about the specific project, which is the kind of fascinating center of this all, it just occurred to me as you were talking that there's been a, a gradual public awareness around the pine bush, not just with pyramids encroachment, but when I was growing up, which was 50 years ago and more, the pine bush was considered a wasteland. It was considered worthless. It was We used to play there as kids, and we had it pretty much to ourselves because 
you know, nobody really understood the environmental significance of it. And it took a lot of activism, um, a lot of work by organizations like Save the Pine Bush. Um, the Carner Blue Butterfly was not endangered back then. It was everywhere <laughs> and just taken for granted. And it's just um, really interesting to see how in a single lifetime, um, public perception can change to embrace the idea um, that some of these spaces that are unique are important. So the kind of work that you're doing, I think, is part of that. I, I see you as an activist in many ways. Well, absolutely. And I think um, sometimes we kind of put up a barrier between legitimate biology and those activists over there, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, the pine bush is a wonderful example of how both communities work towards the same purpose and helped each other. So uh, a biologist named Margaret Stewart had recognized the importance of the species of the pine bush as an early scientist affiliated with SUNY Albany and, um, and put out the call. And, and a bunch of other scientists in the early 70s were studying um, the butterflies, which were really um, in, in the buck moth, which is actually extremely rare, um, and the frosted elephant, and the um, and the regal fritillary, which was extincted out of the pine bush, um, and um, eventually t um, Tim McCabe, who's now the state entomologist, was doing entomology surveys of the pine bush. So it was a center of invertebrate conservation, saying that insects were important and insects were under. Um, population pressure like maybe we didn't realize because they seem like they're so numerous. And um, and so the pine bush actually is sort of nationally recognized as a place where biologists went in there and, and did an awful lot of groundwork to um, create a database of information that is now available to other scientists. And also it, it was a pioneer in the restoration of land that had accommodated species because it was left alone. It was considered a wasteland. And, um, but it couldn't accommodate that many species until it started being managed appropriately with fire. And the pine bush was like an amazing example of getting the community permission to use fire in a suburban context to do controlled burns to aid that ecosystem. And in order to make all that happen, the group Save the Pine Bush came in and they did the part that the scientists could not do. They came in and they worked with the community to get uh, to publicize the importance of land in layman's terms, but they also um, became an independent legal force. And Save the Pine Bush is in the law books all in New York State for the groundbreaking legal work they did on land protection, particularly on obtaining standing that a citizens group could have standing to sue. And they sued everybody. I mean, they sued um, developers. They sued the city of Albany for trying to enlarge the dump into the pine bush. They sued the Albany Pine Bush Commission, whom their lawsuits had helped 
to establish, right? But they sued them to say that they had to burn more, not less, in their fire management plan. You know, and so Save the Pine Bush became this extra force. We don't take government money. We don't take corporate money. We are at liberty as an independent grassroots um, grassroots funded group to go out there and say, yeah, aren't going to have any of this wonderful science, this beautiful preserve, this statue to the butterfly, this discovery center, um, unless we save the habitat and the habitat's going down. And they nearly got rid of the Carnar Blue. It almost, it almost went away. And, and the importance of that, which I think people don't realize, is that the Carnar Blue does exist in other um, habitats that can accommodate it generally fire-dependent, some prairie habitat. Up north in, in Ontario, Canada, you have lupin um, fields and, um, and fire-dependent jack pine, actually, I believe. And so they, they, they were in Indiana. They were in Minnesota. They were 21 sites of Carner Blue um, in Ontario, Canada, and all of those were gone. They're all gone. And, and Ontario listed it in 2007, it disappeared. Indiana disappeared fairly recently, you know, around 2014 or so. Minnesota just vanished. And so while there are a couple more populations around, um, Albany has become kind of this, like, amazing example of what massive restoration and municipal investment. I mean, they're the People were persuaded, and the different municipalities supported the effort. And the Pine Bush Commission is made up of representatives from all the surrounding municipalities, plus the county, plus the city, you know, and and um, you know, plus a bunch of federal money under the Endangered Species Act goes in there. So there's no way that they can afford to sue for habitat. They are comprised of government agencies, but we are not comprised of government agencies so we can save habitat and you can have none of these wonderful things that happen if you don't save the habitat so now we're going to return to what you originally set up for us by saying how poor the species inventory was with this current project and tell us what you did what the group that you formed and what you're doing to record the bats sure so I'm very interested in citizen science and observing species. And, and towards that end, I've been kind of like a chronic um, attender over at Five Rivers where they do wonderful, wonderful citizen science, and I've learned so much. Um, but what they can't do being the DEC is go out to land that's under dispute because the DEC has a role in these proceedings of land under dispute. So because there are, there are parts of the DEC that are adjudicative that um, do judgments around policy and, and land use decisions, there's no way they can go then and gather data and claim to be unbiased. So they can't do it, right? But we are not the DEC. So I can take the wonderful techniques that I learned from them to the extent that I can and say, why don't we be sort of a screening force? We can go stand on the side of the road next to land that's slated for development, and we can watch, and we can look, and we can observe and see what's there and what could be there. And so I have, as, as Save the Pine Bush, I've taken nine different PhDs out to visit these three sites and issue reports as to the um, ecosystem services that are rendered 
by these sites when they're not developed. And then as an individual, we've just started a naturalist study group. We just came up with a new name, um, the All-Volunteer uh, Ecology Study Team. So anyway, so that's Aves, which is for birds. So we're like the, you know, the raptors overhead looking at the, at the wildlife. So anyway, and, um, so we're, we're going out there and we're looking at a variety of different things. And I mean, we're starting to look at the, at the plants and compare them to the plants we see in the pine bush proper and the plants that we see growing, particularly in site two where there's been a certain amount of logging. So there's, it's been opened up. So there's a lot of, um, kind of, um, dune-dependent plants coming up. Um, so we're looking at that, and then um, we thought about it, and we looked over the species inventory, and we're kind of critiquing it, and we come to the place where it says, no bouts. And we're like, I'm sorry, we have community members in Gilderland who see bats every summer, who live contiguous with Site 1. How is it possible there are no bats there? Like, how could that be? So we so we had, like, a legitimate science question, and we thought about it, and we were able to obtain some um, what they call bat detectors. They're little handheld um, things that can pick up high frequencies that we can't hear. And so we thought this would be, like, great fun, and we got a team of people. We had six people out there, and then another team of different six people out there later. So we ended up with four families on Westmere and a good – what was it, 11 people who had all observed bats on little bat detectors, which is kind of good. I mean, if you have 11 people observing something, you know, there should be something there. I mean, uh, it could be Sasquatch or something. But, you know, basically, it, you know, it's a good indication that something's happening. Now, none of us were 100% certain. We thought we were hearing bats on the low registers, and it was probably like, Hoary bats or large brown bats, but we didn't know. We saw a few bats up, but you can't tell by just staring at the sky. They're they're very species are hard to tell apart. So um, we got a bat scientist involved um, named Conrad Vispo, and he's he's terrific. He's a um, agroecologist, and he's just also really interested in what's here. So he had higher level of um, bat recording equipment as well, and we installed four bat recorders, um, three on the edge of, again, we have to stay legal, so we're not trespassing, but um, there were three on the edge of site one and one on the edge of site three, um, because that's all legal, right? It's on on people's fences and stuff, so, um, and we recorded bats. And his analysis, now what you get is this printout, it's a sonogram of a call, and each call has like a unique fingerprint. So you can kind of see what bats are there. And we found eastern red bat, hoary bat, silver-haired bat, and um, large brown bats. And that's kind of to be expected. There's some of the more um, common bats. Um, uh, they're they're tree-roosting species, um, at least three of them are. And... Um, and they like trees that are right on the edge of an open clearing. So it's kind of like this land is where they would be, right? Um, and then we also heard some calls. I mean, we actually went out there because we wondered what was on site two. And we found um, similar bats, but we also found some calls that were quite different, but we they weren't enough um, sort of stereotypical bat calls that we could say what other bats might be there. So we're actually headed out there again. And so 
I have to say, it's been so much more fun than I even thought. I mean, partially because we have such a great group, and uh, they're all, well, some of them are younger, but most of them are middle-aged like me. And we're standing out there under the stars at like 9.30 at night, you know, staring at the sky and holding our little thing and sort of screening where where most of the bats are. Or we're sitting in our cars with a bat recorder on the top of our, our hood, you know, on the street next to where development's going to happen. So that's still good little land, so we can still be there. And um, and Crossgate Security comes by and asks us what the what we're doing, and we smile and tell them. And um, so so we're having this experience. And and what I noticed was, I mean, partially it's it's the pandemic, so people have been indoors, and so everybody's out under the night sky, socially distancing, staring at the sky, and we all like got all joyful. We we're like bats out there we never knew they were there they're doing these cool things they've got maternal colonies you know they're flying around you know they're doing their nimble things some of them you know roost in the cavities of the old snags some of them hang from the foliage they do all this weird stuff and they're out there and they're having their little lives and they're talking they're talking a lot and you know at 48 uh kilohertz they're saying clunk clunk and over at 18 kilohertz they're saying click click you know and and who knows what they're saying right so it's just it's this really great experience where you become more aware of just how alive really the whole world is i mean here we are near the highways near this gigantic mall near western avenue and these bats are having a life being grateful and using whatever little green space we left them and um so uh so it's it's an i it, the the concept is before we make important development decisions to wipe out these existing green spaces we need to really consider the impact on species because of the overwhelming global extinction crisis when i said a thousand species a year it is people are saying like 10,000 species a year now i mean we are disappearing our species and some of the species under the most threat are insectivores like bats and like um the uh, prairie dependent birds that love the pine bush um also are declining fastest of any category of birds the grassland birds and all of them find refuge in these areas um, because they are pine bush areas, though semi-developed. Um, and we really can't afford to lose more species. Now, there's a couple of bats that may be occurring, because they are in New York State, they are in this area, are Myotis genus. We have not um, observed them for sure yet though they might be there, and that's partly why we're going back out, because they're threatened and endangered species. And so if we hear anything like that, then again, we'll have it analyzed by experts to find out if indeed there might be something like that out there. But um, but that's true of many species in this area. There's a lot of rare species here. It's actually extremely unusual. Because I remember out in, in Northern California, we had a couple of species really worried about the Pacific, giant Pacific salamander, the marbled murrelet, the spotted owl, right? But here, I mean, it's a long list of very rare species that use this land. So um, we're in a, a situation where our our need to be good stewards is even, our responsibility is even greater. So, so I think making sure we're out there knowing what's there, calling the 
the corporations on it if they really didn't do their job with their species inventory, which in this case I'd have to say I, I really do think they didn't do their job with the species inventory. And so there needs to be a citizen watchdog to that. Well, it's a worldwide problem. The United Nations report last year said a million species are um, being, as you said, disappeared. But uh, before we get on to that, and I know you've done some other initiatives I'd like to talk about, like with the, the Albany County um, uh, resolution um, last year on requiring the county to do the native plants and host plants along the county roads and protect those. But before we get into that, I just want to go back to some of the nitty-gritty stuff you jumped over that I thought was fascinating. Did you say that these detectors um, that are hung on the edge of these properties, that each call has a unique print. How does that come out? Does it come out looking like a sonogram? I mean, you look at it on a piece of paper. Just describe what that is. Well, and how uh, it's pretty awesome. And, and it's um, the ones we're using are called an Anabat recorder, and they're actually really high tech. And and they're bioacoustic equipment. There are other bioacoustic equipment, but the bioacoustic equipment has improved dramatically in recent years. And so now what they do is they have a chip that you then put in your computer, and they'll take the sound and they'll represent it in terms of the frequency and um, in the in the time. So you can see that I mean, there are certain species where the way their call works is it goes all the way up to you know, 100 kilohertz, and within, you know, a half a second, it drops to 30 kilohertz, and then it, it trails off. So you see this, like, nearly vertical line that, that really no other species does that, so you know that if there's that line at that kilohertz level, that frequency, it's got to be that bad. And there are other marks on these little graphs that you can print out that and it's actually a lot of data analysis the bat scientist guy was like oh my god because we had actually left the bat recorders over there over a couple of nights and so he had like mountains of evidence (laughs) and we were glad we weren't him but he um you know and there are other ones where you know you see a little um cute little like it looks like a a Japanese character or something at over at, you know, like 20 kilohertz and it, it just looks like a brushstroke. And then you know that there's a certain bat that has that pattern and, you know, it's got to be that bat. And so, so we, they're, they're like a fingerprint. And it, so it means we're not really trusting ourselves. And, you know, there's all this idea of confirmation bias. So you want to save the land, you want to see endangered bats. So, you know, somebody starts seeing it and you know, that could happen, but we, we can't do that because we'd use objective techniques. So these sonograms show what's there. They don't share what we wish were there, right? And that's very helpful to do. That's why methodology is important. On the other side, maybe they wish certain things weren't there, but they have to tell us how they looked so we have any idea whether they have any idea whether it's there or not. You know, so it really, I'm just the fascinated. Is as good as how you do it. Yeah, I'm just fascinated about the back communication. Do you know if it's like, you know how biologists with, say, turkey calls have been able to tell that certain sounds mean certain things? Uh, not that the turkeys are having conversations, but that they're indicating they're mating or whatever. I mean, are the the bats these silent noises that we can't hear, but that these get recorded in the sonogram form? Is it something that the biologist you're working with can tell what's being communicated, or is it just enough to say, oh, this is this species, well, this is that species? Interestingly, it's a little bit like owls. 
because the user calls largely for echolocation. So they're hunting, you know, they're looking for insects and, and bats are actually having a hard time. All species of bats are having a hard time because of the insect declines. So they have to work harder to survive now than any time in the past. And you know that because if you walk, if you drive your car down the road and you don't have moths splashed on your windshield anymore, what are the bats eating? They have to really hunt hard. And so they're out there bouncing their calls off insects and eating them. But they are probably also communicating. I have this big book I'm reading about um, bat behavior. And, you know, um, there's people studying this. I personally have to tell you I'm I'm still learning, and so I couldn't really tell you. Um, but I would imagine there's all sorts of signaling that goes on. I mean, there's reproductive behavior, there's maternal behavior. I mean, they have really interesting behavior. I mean, you have um, the little brown bat will have hundreds of of um, female bats nesting in a, a maternal colony while the male bats go off and do their own thing. And that happens in June. And so then in the evening, the female bats will emerge from their, you know, their um, maternal colony and will go, you know, hunting for food and then come back and because they're mammals, they're actually nursing. So, um, you know, so they're just fascinating kinds of behaviors, and much of which you would imagine would require a certain amount of communication, territoriality, all sorts of communications that um, the animals will have. So Fascinating. And we have such little time left. I just want to talk with you because I know, weren't you instrumental in that county resolution? Um, I looked up earlier last year about insects in the biological conservation, which did a review of 73 different historical reports on insect declines. One of them that really struck me was one out of Germany, where they had for 27 years um, monitored the insects in a particular, several different areas in Germany, and they found a 76% decline. Um, and this is what the authors concluded, is insects comprise about two-thirds of all terrestrial species on Earth. Those trends confirm the sixth major extinction event is profoundly impacting life forms on our planet. And I think most of us if we think about insects at all, just kind of think of them as being in our way. <laughs> you know, you know, you know actually, it, it's interesting because the academic literature was coming out before the popular literature took it up, as usually happens, right? And so back in the late like 2007, 2009 or so, I was actually talking to Tim McCabe, the state entomologist, and he doesn't have a lot of time, but he had enough time to tell me, Grace, you have no idea, across genuses within Lepidoptera, which is butterfly and moth, and he's a Lepidopterist, all the species are crashing. So we're not just talking about the Carner Blue, we're talking about vast declines. And I was like, so that's the protein source for the rest of the food chain? And he said, yes. And I'm like, that's the end. And so I started getting more involved with Save the Pine Bush from, from that perspective. And as we got more and more of the reports, as you say, reports out of Germany, um, they're saying that, oh, throughout North America, the decline could be established conservatively about 40% overall insect. But certain insect categories are doing worse, such as Hymenoptera, which are the bees. And so, 
and you got to say, I mean, like the, the conservation in the pine bush preserve has resulted in 43 native species of bees have been documented there. That's amazing. Native bees are not doing well. So that's one of the reasons why this saving land, even only 3,000 acres in the middle of a suburb, is extremely important. Um, but, um, but that being said, it's a huge and escalating problem, partially because of the efficiency of our pesticides. So neonicotinoids are one of the most problematic, because of their persistence in the plants, is one of the most problematic pesticides and, and is listed in this global literature as being one of the leading causes of the declines. Habitat um, loss is number one, climate change is number two, and then intensive agriculture using neonicotinoids is number three in terms of why these insects are declining so fast and so globally. And if we don't do something about that, we're done. And people people actually have said to me in the activist community, not probably understanding what I'm about, they've said, Grace cares more about insects than people, right? And I'm like, there are no people without insects, you know? And, and that really is a take-home message, is without these insects, the birds can't eat. They're talking massive carnage and death. And then the bats can't eat. And if there's no birds and bats to eat, there's a bunch of other species, such as the raptors that eat small birds and the, and the owls that eat small birds. And, and many, many species rely on these food sources. And as you unravel that level, at that level, the ecosystem as a whole, you're done. So it is a crisis, and I brought that to the Albany Common Council, and I brought it with the scientific um, literature. And at first I was kind of a lone voice, you know, and people were like, "What's Grace is always saying the world is ending, the world's still ending, you know, and whatever. And um, But eventually I had beekeepers, I had environmental advocates in New York State, Save the Pine Bush, Sierra Club, everybody was testifying that uh, pollinator-friendly county initiative, which was not the... I mean, it, it wasn't a. It was a. It was a beginning. You know, it was saying, "Let's do some common sense things. Let's make sure there's nectar and host plants on the side of the road wherever county has road. Let's put them in the park. Let's um, make sure the county isn't using harmful pesticides, which the county does not. The county is extremely clean. I can't say the same for the city. I can't say the same for many municipalities. But Albany County itself does not use pesticides, which is awesome. And um, and let's do some education and let's try to get active. Let's really do something, not just talk about how terrible it is. And then let's create a good example for this state and say, Cuomo, people care about the pollinators. You too can take risks. Like agriculture is the number one use of insect killing um, pesticides. Let's get them to use less harmful pesticides. DEC is number two. Let's take the DEC off pesticides. And then the Department of Transportation is number three. Let's reduce their use. And I really, I really see this as a, like, just say no campaign, you know, mm -hmm. that we really got to have to change how we do things. Well, do you have any concluding thoughts to leave our listeners with? You know, I think the, the, the wonderful thing is that people do care and they are waking up. They don't always have all the information, but as they do, they do care that they're part of a complex web of life, and we have a natural desire to take meaningful action to make sure that all of us make it through. Thank you, Grace Nichols. 